Women on the Rise is supported by The Riveter, a modern union for working women, offering content, community, and co-working spaces, all designed with a focus on women and work. I've been a member of The Riveter since nearly the beginning and have proudly watched them expand from Seattle to cities around the country. You might even remember that their CEO and founder, Amy Nelson, was my very first guest on this podcast. Countless collaborations and friendships have come from my kitchen conversations and post-event chats with my fellow Riveters, both women and men. The Riveter believes that equity and opportunity should be a reality, not a promise. Visit www.theriveter.co to learn more. And by Armoire. Do you love variety but hate the clutter and expense of new clothes? That is totally me. So I just signed up for Armoire, a clothing rental service for today's boss lady. Armoire gives me access to designer clothes I can exchange on my schedule for a flat monthly fee. I get access to a guilt-free flow of new clothes without the hassle of shopping or dry cleaning. You can ask anyone. I hate shopping. Women on the Rise listeners can try Armoire today for $100 off your first month using code WOTR100. That's WOTR100. Visit www.armoire.style to get started. So I try to role model what a person of privilege can actually do to advocate and to use their voice so that it's actually a superpower. But you have to look at it that way and then you have to use it that way. So there's a lot of different ways you can use your voice depending on where you are in your journey. But the way I choose to use mine is being intentional about teaching people that look like me how they can utilize their voice, but then also making sure that voices are heard that are not traditionally heard. Welcome to Women on the Rise. I'm executive coach and lifestyle expert, Lara Dolch. And each week I talk to thriving women about the practical self-care strategies they use to fuel their success and pursue what's most important to them in their careers and lives. We get real about topics like healthy eating, exercise, sleep, stress, time management, happiness, mindset, and productivity, while busting myths about work-life balance and being perfect along the way. My goal each week is to uncover new insights that you can immediately apply to your life to recapture your momentum, mind, body, and soul. Hey, podcast listeners, happy October. I already stocked up on pumpkin ale from my favorite Seattle brewery because last year I waited too long and all of the Elysian Night Owl pumpkin ale was gone before I thought of it. I am prepared this year because, you know, priorities. And no, they didn't pay me to say that. But my weird pumpkin ale obsession aside, I hope you're having a great fall so far and enjoying all things pumpkin, if that's your thing, too. And before I tell you about this week's episode, I'm hoping you can help me out with something. I'm trying to reach as many women as possible with the podcast this year. And the absolute best way for me to do that is for you to rate and review the podcast wherever you listen. We have about 55 star reviews on Apple Podcasts right now. Thank you so much if you've left one of them. It would be amazing if we could get to 75 or more by the end of the year. So if you haven't left a rating or review yet, if you could hit pause right now and do that while you're thinking about it, I would so appreciate it. This conversation that we're having about self-care and success is so important, and it's just not one that I hear being done in a real way anywhere else. So more ratings and reviews means higher rankings in the podcast listings, which means more women will get to join in the conversation and hopefully feel less alone about whatever they're struggling with when it comes to self-care. So thank you so much for helping out. Out. 
This week's guest continues the mini diversity, equity, and inclusion theme we've got going this season. Not only is she a sought-after diversity and inclusion speaker and expert, but she's also a role model for anyone searching for a career that fits them to a T and navigating the often circuitous path to success. Her career path? Opera singer to corporate trainer to entrepreneur and DNI expert. Yep, opera singer. How cool is that? I especially loved her perspective on turning privilege into a superpower instead of a source of shame. If you've ever felt that you have nothing to say about diversity because you're white and from a privileged background, Jennifer Brown's story might change your mind. Not only that, but it will give you practical tools for using your privilege to advance women, women of color, members of the LGBTQ community, and other underrepresented groups. Jennifer Brown is an award-winning entrepreneur, dynamic speaker, and diversity and inclusion consultant. She's founder, president, and CEO of Jennifer Brown Consulting, a strategic leadership and diversity consulting firm that coaches business leaders worldwide on critical issues of talent and workplace strategy. Jennifer and I talked about how she discovered that she was better suited to being an outside instigator versus a corporate VP, how her experience coming out as a member of the LGBTQ community influenced her evolving career path, how to know if a company's diversity and inclusion team is the real deal, driving real internal change versus just checking a box, and how Jennifer defines self-care and the question she poses that may help you define it for yourself. Jennifer is smart, compassionate, funny, and real. I know you'll love our chat as much as I did. Enjoy the interview. So yeah, Jennifer, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thanks, Laura. Happy to be here. And I can't believe we haven't met before now because I actually, just a quick side note that I was, you know, looking at your profile on LinkedIn and we have like a million common connections just because, you know, I lived in New York for so long and now in Seattle. Anyway, it's very funny that this is the first time we've crossed paths. (laughs) Meant to be. Yes, indeed. I think it absolutely was. But why don't we start, you know, with sort of a little bit about your career story because I think it's so interesting and I think it will help my listeners kind of lay the groundwork about sort of how you ended up where you are now working in DNI specifically diversity and inclusion for those who Yeah, for sure. Well, it's an unexpected destination for for many of us. We think it's our passion but we never think it could actually translate into a career. So, I'm here to tell you that it can, but we all hail from so many different domains. For me, I was a nonprofit activist in my 20s and I was also an opera singer. So believe it or not, these threads sort of come together. Our nonprofits in my 20s moved to New York to study vocal performance, got a master's from Manhattan School of Music, sadly had to get vocal surgery because I kept injuring my voice. So I had to literally reinvent from there. And where I ended up was a place where a lot of performers end up, which is in corporate training, which I didn't know existed, but uh, which I took to like a duck to water. I mean, I was literally like, oh my goodness, I'm a performer and I can be in front of people and I can learn things. And it was really fun and I was good at it. So I got a second master's in human resources and kind of a change management kind of degree, degree focusing on leadership and consulting skills. And then I ended up being a trainer kind of full time and taught every day. I was in a different corporate classroom teaching one of 20 different classes that I taught and realizing I had a real point of view on what is broken in the workplace from a leadership perspective. And I would end up subsequently saying, you know what, I'm not meant to be a VP of learning 
in a corporate or a company environment. I think I'm meant to be an instigator from the outside. So third party voice and maybe an entrepreneur, which was a surprise to me also. Um, And (laughs) I I was like, oh yeah, I know. I still call myself kind of the reluctant CEO because I wasn't I wasn't a kid who's like, I'm going to start my own lemonade stand and turn it into this and turn it into that. It wasn't that, but I am a business owner for the purpose, I think, you know, and that's what really animates me now. And I was going to say, I was also out since I was 22. So a member of the LGBTQ community for the last like 25 years. And I think that that piece was running alongside in parallel all these other pieces. And then when I realized within the last 12 years of having my own company that, hey, I can apply my leadership development skills and lenses and everything I studied and my stage and platform experience with diversity and inclusion, that's when kind of things started to come together. And we ended up now totally solely as a firm focusing on diversity and inclusion, but we always see everything through a leadership lens, always, because it's critical. I mean, it is a leadership conversation at the end of the day. So that was how it happened. Well, and I'm curious to know why you, this, this moment you talked about earlier, the recognition that you would be more effective is the word I'm going to use as a third party versus an internal, you know, head of talent management or whatever. Why did you think that was, or why do you think that is? (laughs) I kind of found corporate to be difficult and a little soul killing, (laughs) Um, you know, and I, and I was in like insurance for a while, which you might say, oh yes, you know, soul killing, whatever. <laughs> but, I was, but I was also in fashion for a while. I had a job at Tommy Hilfiger and I think it was just the organizational life, you know, it was having bosses and bosses, bosses and the rigidity of the job description and sitting in the cube all day and, and struggling to kind of keep my energy and my creative juices flowing. I think in jobs that I was sort of trying to conform to versus the opposite, (laughs) creating those jobs. And I think I have a little bit of an authority challenge, little, you know, little problem with... um, (laughs) (laughs) You and I are cut from the same cloth, my friend. Yeah, a little bit of a rebel. Um, Although to meet me, I'm not sure you'd see that. But I think there was something in me that thought, this is not going to be where I end up. I'm going to have to make my own way. And, you know, being LGBT, I think you're very used to making your own way because you kind of throw the script out. I mean, when you come out, you're like, okay, well, there's no answers now. And like, you know, I'm on my own and I got to figure out, you know, how I'm going to make my living. And there's no one that's going to answer those questions for me or going to be, you know, if I happen to have a partner who can contribute financially, that's fine. But I felt very much that it was up to me. Um, and that as a woman, I think that's a very unique experience for women that come out is sort of the, the separation from the script in many ways, you know, family, kids, mm-hmm you know, you're, guess what? You're going to be the provider in your life. Like I never knew that that was where I was going to end up. So, um, it was just, it's all been incredibly liberating and I'm so grateful for it, but I, I could have gone such a different way with my life. Um, I'd like to say I was from Orange County, California, and I was probably programmed to be one of the real housewives. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. So I moved all the way across the country, came out, said, no, thanks and struck out on my own. And it was, that was kind of the first time I had to kind of rely on myself and find my voice and figure out my economic viability. Um, And it's been just a huge gift. So yeah, I, I would say being that third party voice is the it's like comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I, I very much feel, 
I came from that world of comfort and that privileged world that I came from. But I feel I'm the Trojan horse that I, if I can get through the gates these days, I can agitate Yeah, in a way that where I'm agitating with my own people, I know how to agitate them because, you know, there are people I grew up with and a land and a world that I understand and a language that I understand and a culture that I understand. Mm-hmm. So I think that third party piece is that independent voice. It is the freedom from having to answer to anybody. And also, by the way, I often say to our poor clients, you know, you can't be a prophet in your own land. It's very Mm. difficult to be listened to with the same level of like assigned credibility that I get to have. And we're no different. You know, my clients are the most talented people in the world, but I can say things, you know, and I will be listened to. And I'm sure I'm also listened to because of how I look and how I identify and what, who people think I am and all that fun stuff too, which like it or not is sadly part of the way the business world functions. And that's what we're trying to change, of course. But at the same time, like if I can get out there and get in there and mix things up, I'm going to do it. <laughs> well, and it's so funny. I, I've often said to people when I have come in to businesses as a consultant for a variety of things that, yeah, there's something about that outside party. People do listen in a different way, regardless of the topic. It's like, I have often said that people, that it feels like no matter what I said, it was like brilliant. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, <laughs> they're listening to me and they're doing what I say. Oh my goodness. Yeah, in a very different way than when you're internal. So it's interesting to hear you apply it in this because you know, my experience that's mostly in, in the marketing space where I've come in as, as a marketing consultant. And yeah, I, I, I can totally see why you latched onto that. Um, can you talk a little bit actually about, since you started to go that direction and talking about using your social capital you know, to help professionals in marginalized communities, can you talk a little bit more specifically about how you do that? So you talked about it, obviously it opens doors for you. Are there other things that you have found useful about that in your work? Oh yeah. I mean, I, I make really mindful choices about like examples I use, I try to speak at the same time about what people that have had, you know, relatively more privilege can do with that privilege and kind of try to take some of the shame out because I think there's a lot of, the message has been heard loud and clear that if you have any kind of privilege, you sort of don't, (laughs) you don't have anything to say, or you're likely going to say the wrong thing, or there's a lot of that running around. So I try to role model what a person of privilege can actually do to advocate and to use their voice so that it's actually a superpower. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. you have to look at it that way and then you have to use it that way. And you might use that, use it in a quiet way. You know, it's not a, it's not a flashy thing. It's often a quiet thing. It's often behind the scenes. It's often about like who you give your seat to. It's often who you are mentored by and who you're mentoring or you're spending your time with. So there's a lot of ways that, that um, you can utilize that behind the scenes quietly with no kudos, you know, and that's not about that. And then other times, by the way, you do need your, to use your, your privilege in a, in a very splashy way, like a CEO who also happens to be a white straight guy saying, you know, I care personally about LGBTQ issues and here's why, and here's my story and here's what I'm going to do. That, that is real and hugely important. And it's, it needs to be public and it needs to be overt and it needs to be quoted in articles. And, and, and then it needs to be followed up with real action internally, of course, as well. Right. So there's a lot of different ways you can use your voice depending on where you are in your journey. But the way I choose to use mine is, is being intentional about teaching people that look like me 
uh, how they can utilize their voice, but then also making, making sure that voices are heard that are not traditionally heard. And so that's the other way I, I quote people, I promote people on social media. I share hashtags all the time. I interview for my podcast voices and stories that aren't in the center typically. And I give whatever I've built, I share that with them. And that's, I think, the, one of the most important things we can do. And then admit what we don't know and continue our learning and consume. I, I could personally consume media that's not about me and my culture all the time so that I am a guest in other cultures and I have that firsthand knowledge of what it feels like to be the only so that I can relate in a small way and help encourage others to do the exact same thing. Yeah. So there's, this is all in the second book, but I just thought like, how have I undertaken this journey? And I'm not done at any, you know, in any way. I am a beginner about many identities that I still have to learn a whole lot about before I can even advocate effectively alongside them. Um, but that, that's the work that I'm undertaking. So I like to say we're, none of us is an expert in this stuff. We're all learning and the language is constantly changing. And I think our knowledge about our history as a country is constantly changing. And we're learning more all the time about what we haven't talked about. So we need to do more talking and more normalizing of it and more correcting. <laughs> right. Well, and it occurs to me that uh, approaching it from the perspective of curiosity perhaps is a helpful lens, at least for me that, because I think that, you know, I love hearing your perspective on, you know, using privilege, first of all, being aware of privilege and then, you know, using it as a superpower, viewing it as a superpower, because I do think to your point earlier, there's, there's shame around that. And that's not productive for anyone. (laughs) Um, (laughs) My friend calls it the pain Olympics. Kenji Yoshino says, let's not like get into the pain Olympics. You know, that doesn't help because where do we end up when we do that? And I think, you know, how, where I see the work is, is we've, we've done a great job of identifying diverse identities and kind of shoring up our communities so that we feel less marginalized, less alone, less isolated. That's been really important and that continues to be important. But the problem is that there's been an exclusionary message, I think, experienced by others as we've found those communities and flown the rainbow flag and, you know, or, you know, been part of the Black Employee Network like, or the women's network, we've been so excited to find each other. We've also got to do the bridging work mm-hmm. and we've got to bridge to each other, first of all, because I don't think we're very intersectional in our approach, number one. So we have our own diversity issues within diversity communities, mm, interesting. <laughs> big time, right? I mean, yeah. you look at any women's network in corporate America and they have a challenge with women of color. Women of color don't want to be a part of it. They're not comfortable. They mm-hmm. start their own thing. Um, because often the leaders of women's networks may be white women who haven't really done this deeper work around understanding intersectionality, how to, how to really walk that talk. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done in each of the communities that we consider to be diverse and sort of, we all should know better, but just because you are in a marginalized group doesn't mean you're sort of walking the walk of inclusive leadership. And that's like a big aha for a lot of people. And so similarly, you could look at a straight white cisgender man who's really walking the walk too. What does that look like? Can you, I actually wanted to ask you about it specifically. Yeah. You do talk in your book, How to Be an Inclusive Leader, about everyone having a diversity story, which yes. is a slightly different question. But I'm curious, like what, what does that look like for, you know, uh, 
middle-aged cisgender white man to be walking the talk? And yeah. what might his diversity story be? Oh, there's so, I'm just so humbled when people come up to me and share of that demographic because I do know there's a fear around it, but executives will stand up and share some pretty vulnerable things with the group in the keynotes that I give, whether it's, I didn't go to college and I don't, my kids don't know. (laughs) I was a little bit, you know, lost in my early days. I grew up in an alcoholic abusive family. I have a brother with a disability that I, I was a caregiver for, for years. I'm a huge ally of the LGBTQ community, but I can't talk about it because I work for a conservative company. My kid just came out to me as trans and I'm like a huge like pro parent ally, but I don't know how to talk about it at work. I have kids who are mixed race, so they look nothing like me and nobody thinks we're related. <laughs> like I'm Jewish, you know, there's religious diversity that's often not talked about in, you know, a Christian management team or vice versa. I have educational background that might be, you know, not traditional or not enough or too much. So I think that opening up the aperture to welcome all of us in this conversation is super helpful to, for one minute, like enable people to say, I, 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 I didn't know this really mattered to other people. And I didn't know that it counted as diversity because we always just talk about race and gender. And I think that, you know, diversity is at, if it's not at your doorstep yet and you think you have no connection to it, it will be. (laughs) Because guess what? The team you're on in the future, if not today, will look nothing like you look. You know, I, I think that most of us can say that. Your kid may come home and share something with you and all of a sudden you're just dropped right into the deep end. So there's things, what I want leaders to feel is prepared for this. And so that work means that you're looking at the, the studies and the research and the demographics about how the world is changing and how your employee population is changing and, and how, you, you know, we all have this, we all have an experience of what exclusion feels like, usually, most of us. And if you don't have a lot of that, you have your privilege then that you can do something with, right? So we can all do something. We can all tell a story about something. And if your story isn't about exclusion, because there are people that come up to me and say, honestly, I just cannot relate. I really have had such a great life, like easy life. I can't really relate to everything you're talking about. Then we can have a different conversation, which is, okay, so what are you doing with the ease that you've had in your life? You know, how are you raising your awareness and your knowledge? How are you activating on behalf of others that may not feel so comfortable as you? Yeah. That's what you should be focusing on. So, you know, any of these ways in, I'll take them because, you know, we need... We need, we really need more people to just connect in and get started. But I think we come to it from such a different place. And I, I really just want, I want these leaders to, to acknowledge that they have with a little action or one comment or one challenge they can make to a joke or whatever, that they are actually lessening the burden that has been placed on, you know, women and people of color and LGBT people who are closeted and, you know, people who don't talk about their disability, you know, traditionally a lot of the work has fallen to those folks. And we're tired of always having the conversation, tired of always answering the questions, tired of wondering whether we're tokenized as the only XYZ on a team. Yeah. And so I think that that's, there's a level of, level of fatigue that I really worry about because every morning you sort of, when you're in that position, you get back up and you get back on the horse. <laughs> and like, at some point you're going to be like, you know, I want to go work for a company that I don't have to work so hard to be at. Right. 
And that's yeah. what we don't want. Yeah. Well, and it sometimes feels like I can, you know, only speak to it as a woman. It sometimes feels like, can someone else please speak up? Like, can, can right. the, like dudes in the rooms, please like <laughs> <laughs> dudes, please like, yeah, you know, yeah, I'm yeah. tired. So, you know, it's a different experience for me because I have, you know, areas of other privilege, but, but I can certainly relate to that, like feeling like, God, I'm just tired of, of fighting, you know, how do you deal with that sort of the fatigue that comes from that? I mean, some of it's probably compassion fatigue for, you know, for other groups, but also it's just that mental fatigue of like, like (laughs) you said, always getting back on the horse. What do you have any self-care strategies that allow you to keep going? I think that's such a big topic. It's funny when you ask people like me and others, um, we're like the worst people at the (laughs) (laughs) self-care. Well, Um, you might, you might define it differently. And I'm interested in hearing that because I think everyone defines it differently. So, so yeah, yeah. I think that's true. I think, you know, for some people it's meditation and, you know, exercise and kind of rebalancing themselves or their spiritual work that they do maybe outside of their role. Um, it might be spiritual communities they're a part of that really, we've got to find a place, I think, to restore. So the best self-care is where do you restore? Where do you plug your plug yourself in and feel that you can totally breathe? And also that you can totally be yourself, whether you're angry or frustrated or you just want to vent. You know, having a community, and often those communities are communities that are the same identity where you can be in a room and close the door and not be on display, but you can actually let your guard down and just be honest about how tired you are, frustrated, how angry you are with the pace of change. You're impatient. Um, I know that's probably universal for a lot of people that do this work because we're like, we thought we would have had this all figured out by now. And a lot of us, for a lot of us, this work is so intuitive. It's like, of course, I mean, of course that's the answer. Of course, of course our workplaces will be places of empathy. And once you show people the data, of course they're going to care. But sadly, I think people leave the training on unconscious bias and they go back to their jobs and their desks and they just go back to the old behaviors. Even though they've been shown that, you know, the person sitting next to you may be sort of having this experience where they're really closeted about whatever their diversity story is like on a Monday morning and they, they maintain that facade for days at a time. So yeah, I do think find that place where you can restore, where you can let things out. I don't think, by the way, we, we wrestle too with where can I show my anger and what role does anger have in fueling me as a practitioner? And I would say anger is so good and so important and so cathartic and you have to feel it but you can't like live in it. (laughs) So that's where I think your allies come into your life and say, hey, pass me the baton for a little while. Let me run with it. You sit back and take a rest and I'll run with this for a while. That is amazing. Like if nothing else happens from the book, it's like, just take the baton for a little while. Yeah, I love that. Be the one that has the conversations and challenges the jokes or the comments or ask the question about why do we do it this way? you know, be the one that does mentor me or sponsor me in a room that I'm not in and that raises my name for like a stretch assignment. Mm -hmm. You know, be the one that, that challenges somebody's comment about me and my potential in a me in a performance review or in sort of a promotion and advancement meeting, you know, be the one that spots the bias and the resume review process and says, Hey, why don't we have, why do we have 90% male candidates for this role? 
Yeah. You know, why did that happen? And be the one that asks why it happened. It's not just the remedy and the solutioning of the problem on the, on the back end or the front end, but it's like the inquiry of what happened in our process that led us to this place. Like that's important. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's making me think actually about just hearing the, some of those examples, realizing that not realizing, just remembering that, you know, it has to happen at all levels in a company. And it makes me wonder what your thoughts are on this trend towards hiring, you know, diversity leaders, because I got to tell you, I feel like it's kind of hmm. this cop out, like companies are like, oh, we, we have a head of diversity and inclusion, so we can just <laughs> let them handle it. Right. Oh yeah. It drives me a little crazy. What are your thoughts on that? And, and, you know, what do you yeah. think? That's in my book too. Like that exact point. Yeah. Um, not that I don't think DNI teams are important, and I'm sure you do. You do too. Like, you know, if if it weren't for them, we would be nowhere. Um, because at least you know they've been some of the companies I work with. They've had a DNI team for like 25 years. I mean, they some of the believe it or not, the banks have been doing this forever for really? like for really. Long. I know it's crazy, but huh. yeah. So they probably because they've been sued. <laughs> so many right. times over the years. Uh, so they've gotten the memo and they need to do this. And they also have the business case. You know, think about they're very acutely aware. Anybody with a retail presence is acutely aware that their world is changing. And yeah. the fact that you don't look like that world internally is a real liability. Like that is a disaster waiting to happen. So anyway, they they understand that. But DNI teams, if a, if a company is just doing to check the box, it is um, it is tokenization, but it's funny, I'm not sure you really know that until you get into the company inside as a consultant and from where I sit. Um, we can never know what the support is behind that person. Um, that's, I think that's what I would want to know for real is, okay, so you're setting up your team for the first time. That's great. Is the organization ready to actually throw its weight and its resources and the senior leadership buy-in behind this person and behind this team so they can make real change? And so that's hard to ascertain from outside. You know, you have to either be consulting to that company and you could ask me, do they really mean it? And I could say, actually, yeah, they do mean it. So that person isn't just a figurehead, but there are other companies who are kind of checking the box and not really doing the work. And in that case, I do think it's, it's going to be a very difficult road for that person in that job. They're just going to have to be incredibly creative as a team of one who you know, is kind of side of desk, you know, not really at the table in the conversations, being really listened to and heard, which is different than just being at the table. <laughs> um, so we talk a lot about like the, the sort of the depth of the meaningfulness of how you're listened to and whether you're at the table and it's actually, you're consulted. That's where, you know, you matter and what you're bringing whether it's your own identity and your insights from that, or whether it's your skills, and hopefully it's both, skills of organizational change and facilitation. And, you know, there's a lot of skills in the DNI toolkit that don't have to do with DNI. It's a very interesting field. It's, it's stakeholder analysis. It's influencing skills. It's sales. It's marketing. It's communications. It literally is almost like all the functions rolled into one job. And you, you have to be good at a lot of these things, particularly when you don't have team and resources. Like you, you literally have to get work done through others. And that, that is, um, I honestly think it's one of the most challenging roles, but it is such a formative role. I mean, if I could put everybody through a rotation in that role, 
it would create like more adept professionals like across a multitude of sure. functions. Yeah, I never really thought about that. It really is a well, yeah, it's just a very cross-functional role, which makes sense. I mean, that's what it should be because it's got to show up in all the different components of a business. Absolutely. Right. What are your thoughts around this this idea of, you know, bringing our full selves to work, you know, and more specifically, what does that mean to you and and how is it helpful for a business, do you think? Oh, well, we, we use it a lot. We probably overuse it. <laughs> I will, I'm yeah, guilty maybe of it. <laughs> yeah, some, yeah, I know because it's so, it's so catchy and yeah. people love it because you know why they love it? It's because they know that they're not doing it. Yeah. It seems like such a wonderful idea, this like utopia, right? I, I <laughs> it's like a be my full self. At work. <laughs> oh, oh I wish. If only. Right. If only. Um, and I think a lot of older generation people like could never do it. And so I do think there's this like deep longing to feel seen and heard mm-hmm. by so many. And I'm Gen X, particularly baby boomers, but not Gen Xers too. You know, that we, we didn't think, I don't know, like whether we didn't have the generational might and size and voice to demand to be seen and heard. But I often say millennial, Gen Y, and certainly Gen Z, they're coming into the workplace wanting to bring their full self to work and expecting to. And yes, could we see that as entitlement? I think that's gotten that kind of name. But the underlying want to matter from day one is profound. And I think a lot of us just kind of gave up on it. <laughs> I'm not sure we ever really, we ever really thought it was possible. I mean, I, I, I think our parents in Gen X were like, you, you're 18, like go figure it out. I'm not going to, God knows they were never on the phone with our bosses arguing <laughs> over our performance review oh, no. or the salary that we're getting, you know, and they were not wooed for parents weekend. Like parents are now of new hires. Like it is, it's really crazy times out there. So it's very different. Um, yeah. So bringing your full self to work, I, I love, and I think the generational imperative to do it is, um, hey, all of me matters and I'm not going to hide any of me for your convenience. Mm-hmm. That is amazing, right? So I think they're leading the way and it's shocking to the system because the assimilation of all of us was the, was the expectation. I mean, for years, and I think we all still do it. And I think we're also mad about it because we couldn't, we couldn't bring our full selves to work. So when younger women say to me, why don't older women make time for me? Why don't they mentor me? Why are they so mean to me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Honestly, I, I say it's just, you know, the, the battle scars of professional women of certain ages are intense. Like that was a really, it was a very tough journey and it is a tough journey for so many women to hang in there, move through the pipeline, get into the C-suite if they can, which so many can't or have given up before they got there. And so I'm like, you know, have some generational understanding and some cultural humility about what has gone before you. I mean, and this is true for LGBT people, you know, many people continue to be closeted in the workplace, but you know, young people, young people more and more are like, Hey, I, why would I cover who I am? Why would I be closeted in the interview? And then they, it's almost sadly, it's something they have to learn. Yeah. And then they go come out of school where they were out, they go back in the closet in the workplace because very quickly they understand and they pick up on all the cues, subtle and otherwise that all of who they are is not okay. And they don't see any role models and it's kind of, you know, they get the sense that there's a stigma. So I think um, bring your full self to work is this fantasy. I 
I think it's important to fight for. Interestingly, some people are like, what do you mean bring your full self to work? You know, what if I'm not a liberal or progressive person and my values are different and I don't understand why we fly the pride flag and I'm offended by that. And then you're telling me to bring my full self to work. So that's where it gets really interesting is does inclusion include everybody? And I, that's an open question for us, right? Is it okay? Is it okay to express those opinions? Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I can't really wrap that up in a nice little bow in a short no, time. That one's a, <laughs> no, that one's a, that's a tricky one. No, <laughs> it's true. If you're advocating for inclusion, does that mean that you can accept, you know, people who don't, you know, agree with you? And yeah, it's, a, I mean, that's just like a microcosm of our world right now, right? I mean, it's just like, it's the for big sure. question that we're all trying to answer right now. It and is. It is. it's just showing up in, in companies too. So, well, I hate to do this because I would love to keep having this conversation, but, okay. you know, can you just make sure that people know where that they can find out more about you and your work. Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me to share. Um, I'm on my second book. It's so amazing. Uh, The first is called Inclusion and it was out in 2016. And then my new one is called How to Be an Inclusive Leader. It's much more of a, I'd say a handbook and it's ideal for anyone who has people responsibilities or is on a team or even outside the workplace who's in a sort of board or community organization, anywhere where there's a group of people trying to tackle these issues, I I suspect it will be very helpful for folks. There's an assessment that goes along with the book. You can find that in the pages of the book, but it's also at the URL, inclusiveleaderthebook.com. So it's a free assessment. Please take it, you know, get your, we're calling it a score, but you get kind of a report on where you are in different levels of competency. And it gives you a lot of great resources to study and increase your language abilities in, in a variety of areas when it comes to diversity and inclusion. And then in social media, I'm a, a wild woman on Twitter. So please tune in <laughs> at Jennifer Brown, <laughs> uh, constantly tweeting out good things. You would learn a lot if you just followed my Twitter feed with all of the learning that we've been talking about. And then Instagram is Jennifer Brown Speaks. And my podcast is called The Will to Change. Awesome. I'll put all those links in the show notes. Thank you so much, Jennifer. This was such an amazing conversation. Thank you, Laura. I appreciate being your guest. That's it for this week's episode of Women on the Rise. If you're ready now to wake up with the energy, clarity, and confidence to take on your goals, visit lauradolch.com slash women on the rise to get a few resources I pulled together just for Women on the Rise listeners. For show notes and resources mentioned in this episode, visit lauradolch.com slash podcast. And if you liked what you heard, please rate and review the podcast in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify. It's a huge help to the show and I truly appreciate it. This episode was produced by me with editing help from Dave Nelson at Lens Group Media. Media.